0: Hello everyone, I'm Colin Ellis and for 30 years I was a permanent employee of other people's cultures. What I wanted to know more than anything else during that time was how to build a great culture myself. And so I wrote a book called culture fix which is the world's first how-to guide for building great workplace culture and in this the culture makers podcast i get industry leaders from around the world to expand on the ideas that i wrote about in the book and get them to share actionable things that you can do to create a great place to work yourself and remember listening is good but action is better Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Culture Makers podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nick Blinko. Now, Nick is originally from the UK and now is the vice president of advancement at the university of melbourne in australia and he joins me today by phone hello nick
1: hi colin how are you
0: going i'm good mate how are you going
1: yeah very good thank you uh, yes i'm i'm sat here enjoying the sunshine uh, at home sequestered carefully
0: so yeah we're recording this podcast uh, during uh, the coronavirus so we're isolated normally we would we would have met up in a cafe but we can't do that not just at the minute anyway where was home originally Nick way back when
1: I am originally from rugby in the UK uh, born born actually in uh, Warrington first but then moved back down to rugby with my parents when uh, I was about a year old and lived there till I was 18
0: so rugby smack in the middle almost of the UK isn't it just a bit to the left of the middle of, of, of the UK indeed indeed <laughs> yes yeah. yeah, so I'm a, Mi- I'm, a Mi- I'm a Midlands boy <laughs> and Warrington not not far from where I was uh, well, not far from where I used to live Um, and so what was school like for you you know did you have plans did you have ambitions when you were at school i
1: I followed a fairly well worn path of, of boys that went to my junior school if they were relatively bright we used to, we, we did um, we did the 12 plus so it was a, an entrance exam everyone in the, everyone in the town did it um I was lucky enough to go to uh, the local grammar school boys grammar school with a number of my still very close mates um same school as my dad but in the end I was the I was the first person to go to university from my family so that wasn't a particularly well-worn path, and I sort of had to make my own way in that, in that respect, but I um, went to the University of Hull to read Sociology and Social Anthropology, and then um, I discovered I was quite good at that, um, which was a surprise, really, because I'd never been particularly good at anything <laughs> in the past, um, and ended up going to University of Oxford to study Ethnology and Museum Ethnography, so that's basically kind of Museum Anthropology.
0: Wow, so kind of social cultures are all kind of there in your background with the, with the Anthropology study, yeah?
1: Yeah, indeed, and it's, I think that's always the thing that excited me most about it. So anthropology I found more interesting than sociology because it was more about culture, and it was about how groups work together and when they work together, the difference that that makes. And without knowing it, that's kind of applied to pretty much everything I've done since. It was never deliberate, but um, uh, I've always uh, I've always found how how groups work and how individuals within groups interact. Just just sort of naturally fascinating, really.
0: And it's one of those things, Nick. And you know, we'll kind of get onto your experience shortly. But I think that once you have a, a good understanding of how that works, it can help support provide insights for your entire work and life, right?
1: Indeed, I think I think I'm not sure I've ever cracked fully understanding it, but I've always been interested in it. And I think that's probably the bit that, as I as I was sort of thinking about what we might talk about today, that the fact that I'm I'm interested. And I want to I want to understand is probably what's really stood me in best stead. So it's less about learning about systems and and learning the science behind it, but actually just being interested in people and how and interested in how people interact as part of a system has been the bit that's always interested me. So so what was the first job? I'm presuming you mean my like first like proper job, yeah, rather proper, than like your proper job, yeah. Job. Okay, <laughs> not not my suspensive shelf. No, no, no. no, no what okay, was,
0: yeah, no, okay. Uh, what was your actual first job? Yeah, I'll declare mine. I was a I was a, a shelf picker at Argos. Which is a kind oh, of excellent. retail store in the UK. I'm not sure if they're still going. So what, what was your first job? Mine was um, a shelf filler for Marks & Spencer's,
1: <laughs> um, and where, where I learned a lot about how, um, how not to manage a team. That was, uh, that was one of those... Uh, <laughs> it could, could not have been a less motivating environment, but we were paid extremely well, and we used to get free sandwiches.
0: Well, there you go. <laughs>
1: Indeed. Um, My first proper job was as an ethnology tutor in Oxford. So I taught undergraduates who were reading degrees in geography, archaeology and anthropology, and also human sciences. And at the same time, I was what they call an ethnographic interviewer. So in the days before saving energy became a cool thing to do, and lots of people were really, lots of people clearly, rightly now interested in climate change, I worked for something called the Environmental Change Unit which um, was really ahead of its time and um, I was employed to interview people about why they made particular choices about buying fridges and freezers and sort of white goods generally trying to understand what it was that kind of sat behind their decision making so again it goes back to this point around you know being curious about why people behave in particular ways I guess mm-hmm. uh, and I did that for about four years before I before I got into advancement which is what I do now.
0: So what did you learn about yourself in you know kind of that first real job that's your first exposure to management, leadership and actually I guess trying to impress or develop your own style um, with in that, what, kind of, what did you learn?
1: Uh, it was. It, I was. Um, I had a really fabulous. i all the way through my career. I've had. Um, I've been fortunate enough to um, work with and for some pretty remarkable people. And the working culture at the Environmental Change Unit was really interesting. It's quite a dispersed group of people, both geographically and. In terms of their interests, so we had geographers, we had economists, we had we had full-on scientists, we had um, anthropologists, sociologists, modelers, all sorts of things. The working culture that was developed there was very much one of the family, um, even though even when it got to be quite a significant size. Sign. Uh, and I and I probably didn't understand it quite so much then because I there was no there was no nothing to compare it to. But as I look back and think what um, what what the team there constructed and how they. How they brought everyone together—it's it, it's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. So I think, probably retrospectively, I've learned a lot about how culture can support really high performance, and particularly teamwork in a culture can can support really significant high performance. At the time, that time though, I was um, I was quite a young guy. I was having a really great time living in Oxford, and if I'm honest, it was an interesting and diverting job to do that paid reasonably well, and um, <laughs> uh, and I made the most of it. I think. Uh, And I certainly wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the people who gave me a crack at that particular point.
0: I talked about this recently, Nick, and I said that often the best leadership lessons are in hindsight, where a penny will drop. You know, I remember when I arrived in New Zealand, which was in 2007, something that one of my bosses said to me in 97 suddenly clicked. And I I remembered (laughs) it. And at that time in that job back in 1997, similar to you, I was having a whale of a time touring the UK. I was like, oh, that's what he meant.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like the, you know, you know, youth is wasted on the young, isn't it? You know, nuggets <laughs> of leadership advice are probably wasted if you, until you've actually kind of, until you've lived it maybe a little bit more, maybe there's a bit more about life experience, which I think is a, I don't know whether this is a fair digression, but I think maybe one of the challenges for, um, for younger people today or seem, do always seem to want to be, you know they do a job for a relatively short period of time and then they want to move on to the next thing and i kind of feel that i did learn by doing hard yards but until i got really really good at something mm. um and then occasionally the, as you say the penny then dropped
0: i i read an interview with daniel ek who's the ceo of spotify recently who talked about uh younger people and the fact that they don't spend very long in a job and he, he made a really good point and he said well managers don't set really good expectations about what they you know, kind of can, can learn and the progression that they've got they very much come into a job where I expected to perform immediately. He said, "When you know, he, when he got his first job, it, he was given a, a, a kind of plan of this is where you can go." And I remember when I first started for my first job at, at, for NatWest Bank, I was told there was all of these departments, and that if I do well, I could go through all of these. And and so I all, always had that desire to move onwards and forwards, uh, Nick. And I don't know, you know, certainly some of the cultures I've worked with, they don't seem to provide that quite so much. Uh, which will yeah. inevitably lead to kind of people getting itchy feet, right?
1: I think, um, I think universities are definitely getting better at that. And I've noticed that even in the five years I've been here, that there is, a I think, a, an understanding that showing people the potential trajectory and being very clear about the expectations around milestones that would get you there. So very much as, and I suspect perhaps businesses were better at this if you go back to when my, my dad was a management apprentice. You know, there were kind of gates you had to go through and you knew you had to go through the gates. And then um, when you went through it, then, then there was another thing for you to do, you know, and there was a very clear pathway. So I think universities are getting better at, at mapping out... That, that potential trajectory for people. And hopefully that will keep people happier for longer um, and still challenged. And I think, you know, offering young people really want new challenges. And I think it's up to us really to try and stimulate them to um, to give them that opportunity. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, fantastic. So so advancement, so what was your first foray into kind of advancement and engagement?
1: Um, so, I mean, for, for those who don't know, advancement is a, is a combination of both fundraising and um Usually, large-scale relationship management, and it's a term that is used primarily in universities rather than anywhere else. So, it's fundraising, and it's effectively alumni relations. So, maintaining relationships with, in our case, nearly four hundred thousand people in one hundred and fifty different countries. So, it's quite a large-scale engagement opportunity. My first job doing that was um, at a tiny, tiny college um, as part of the University of Oxford, a place called Mansfield College, and it had a particular. It was a really cool little place. It was one of the few. Only took sixty students a year. So only at any one time, you know, the best part of maybe 180 students as part of the community there. But they were one of the first places in Oxford to have a proactive outreach program to people from unconventional social backgrounds. So they did a lot of work with people from FE colleges, which is the kind of similar to the kind of the vet sector here. So usually young, pe- young people or younger people who didn't follow usual conventional educational route that still have some real talent and potential and they, they they work really really hard to go find some super bright kids and over I mean it's been 20 years I think since I worked there but over that period of time they've actually climbed to be one of the highest um, academically achieving colleges in the University of Oxford but maintaining this idea that it should be about opportunity not pre-existing, pre-existing advantage that fitted very well with me. Uh, and we did a lot of really brilliant fundraising focused around how you provide opportunities for those best able to maximise them. And it was um it was pretty, it was a privilege really to be part of that. And again, I worked with some two really amazing leaders from whom I learned a great deal.
0: Awesome. And then Mel, the the move to Melbourne came five, four, five uh, years ago. That was.
1: Yeah, five years ago, just kind of went to five years. So I was, after Mansfield, I went to the University of Birmingham, where I was for 13 years. So, you know, when it comes to sticking around, I'm quite sure. <laughs> Three different jobs, there, and again, I was given... First of all, the opportunity, but then Birmingham were very responsive when I when I sought greater responsibility and they were fabulous at, at giving me that and testing me and allowing me to kind of allow me to um, have my head, as it were. Um, and then, yeah, University of Melbourne five years ago and, and never regretted it for a second. It's been an amazing work challenge, professional challenge, personal challenge, but just so much opportunity. It's been brilliant.
0: And culturally, uh, what, what have you noticed? I, I suppose it's different between the UK and, and Australia.
1: Um, oh, there's a brilliant book, um, by Erin Mayer. I think it's called Culture Wars, which explains quite a lot of the difference between the UK and Australia and many other countries. The culture so, map, but,
0: um, yeah, culture map. It's culture called yeah. Maps.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's excellent. Theory. Yeah, and she, um, and you'd imagine that it would be a lot more similar than they are. I realised in about two weeks that, um, that some of the things that would be Easily and routinely understood in a work context in the UK, such as me saying, "How would you feel about writing that report for me?" In the UK, that meant, "Will you please write that report for me?" <laughs> um, what I noticed here was um, when it didn't come, and I asked um, the person I was asking, said, "Well, you didn't say do it. You just said how I feel about it, and I didn't really feel like doing it, so I didn't." <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I, I learned there that checking in. On understanding was quite important um, and asking the right questions was important and really clarifying expectations were, was, was also important. So, um, uh, But actually, I find, I find the work culture here actually probably rather healthier than anything I've previously experienced. I think there is a, a greater a greater sense of um, a holistic view of life here and that's been quite a joy, actually. It's always felt a bit of a grind, if I'm honest, in the UK, mm. whereas here... Um, I've, had, I've been blessed in with working with some incredibly talented people who would absolutely put the hours in. But there is, there is, and there's an acknowledgement. There's more to life, and I think that's really important.
0: And are you quite deliberate now about how you go about building your own team cultures, Nick? Given your, given your background?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, I work really. Hard. I've got a really great senior team, and we we take a fairly um, we take a collective view of of our leadership of of our office. And we work we've worked very hard as a as a senior team to build a a culture amongst ourselves that is very clear about um, our sort of cultural and behavioural expectations of each other and of our Senior group, and then we work similarly hard to make sure that's promulgated through the system as well. Yeah, it's, it's obviously, you know, we, we we look for certain things when we're recruiting people, but when people do come and work for us, first of all, the team has already developed. Uh, three years ago, we actually developed our own set of um, values and behaviours, and that was that was generated very much bottom up. So we recruit to those values and behaviours. We set expectations around performance that relate to those values and behaviours. And that's a really important, important part of the induction program when someone arrives. So everyone sees me when they arrive. And the bit that I talk most about is our expectations around um, the culture of the office and how people will work within that. And when people do a great job and they, they, um, they demonstrate the culture and behaviors, then we highlight that. Similarly, if people fall short of our expectations, then just in the same way as we would address it in terms of specific performance, we would also address it in terms of how people turn up. So we're pretty deliberate about it and we've been clear that we won't shy away from difficult conversations should the need
0: arise and i think often the cultures that i guess don't achieve what they set out to often they walk past those behaviors nick they don't have the courage to deal with those and you know i often say it's a kind of management muscle that everybody has to learn and no one wants to do it right it's you know performance management isn't top of anybody's list but if you walk past that behavior you set the tone for the rest of the culture would you agree with that
1: I do absolutely and I think and that's regardless of what level as well so I'm um, you know I think um, sometimes where, where I've seen culture where I've seen culture challenges is because we apply our expectations to people lower down in the system but we don't hold ourselves to account for them or we don't hold other senior people to account for them so um, and that that's just incredibly inauthentic and people can see that gap so you know if, if, if anybody crosses the boundary around what's acceptable um, culturally, then. I, I will have the conversation if it was with one of my senior people, and I would expect them to have the conversation with any of their senior people. And I think people see that. I really do think people see that, and they're looking for authenticity, and they're looking for uh, they're looking for evenness, they're looking for equity. Really, that it's, you can't just. You can't just have performance conversations with people who are further down the pyramid. You've got to have conversations um, with each other and hold each other to account. So, my senior team will quietly and nicely say to me, um, I'm not sure that was quite what we were expecting, Nick, which obviously I with great equanimity.
0: <laughs> with grace. And, uh,
1: I, I well I'll get to grace I do get to grace it's just it might just might not necessarily be
0: graceful right at the start but that's the thing though Nick right is that we we all need that feedback and um, you know I've had I, the younger me had you know a first year of kick up the pants metaphorically speaking and and I think that, that's, that they're important lessons for us to learn as well as remaining curious about what's next culturally so I guess my mm-hmm. final question is, is how do you keep yourself curious you know kind of what are you looking for culturally to expand your culture building skill set I,
1: I, I think i probably keep my eyes and ears open for people that i can learn from for a start now I have a, I have a brilliant coach a woman called grace thomas from uh heat and heart and she helps me and my senior team sometimes that's quite structured and sometimes it's more this is what i'm thinking about what do you reckon grace i read a lot i guess take care to not be faddy in my approach so I'm not I'm not looking for I'm not looking for the fix I'm looking for things that I can ad- adapt and adopt I'm not look I don't I can't slavishly follow a way of doing things so I'm looking to build a toolkit as I go I I've got people that I can go back to some former colleagues that I I, I that I've just sort of I've seen them do something that, particularly situations where I would have historically struggled. I watch how people like that deal with them, and sometimes it's I can't do that myself because I'm just not that person. But I do try to understand and internalise what it is they've done and how they've done it. I, you know, I, I'm, I love my sports. So I, I guess I also look to understand how great teams of different types work. It isn't just about how you build an advancement team, but you know, when when there's been a great piece of leadership or great piece of followership, what is it that what could I learn from that? And then you've got you know just Genuinely extraordinary people like Ernest Shackleton, who managed to hold a team of people together in the Antarctic. Under, I mean, if 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 it wasn't true, it would be. So far fetched, it would be ridiculous that. And he managed to hold a group of people together in extraordinarily trying circumstances for months and months and months. It was just, you know, there was just some brilliant leaders out there. And I guess I just stay curious and try and learn as I go along.
0: so you mentioned you, you read it. You know, this is something that I'm finding with all of the culture makers that I interview is that you know they really make the time to read mm-hmm. others' works. Uh, you mentioned the Culture Map uh, by by uh, Erin yep. Meyer, which is literally to my yes. right here as I as I look. Oh, what 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 else or what other books, Nick? Have you read that you know kind of really made an impression on you? Um... That's a really good question. I, mean, I, spend,
1: I spend quite a lot of time, so I set aside time each day at the start and end of the day,
0: sometimes just to reflect on how my day's gone and how I'm turning up. That's interesting that you take the time to reflect. Quite a lot of people will just be caught up in this maelstrom of busy, busy, busy that often mm. they don't take the time to reflect, right? They don't take the time to say, okay, well, what have I learned today about my job? What have I learned about the interactions between individuals? What have I learned about myself? And I think that's it's just really important. Well,
1: I still get... There are bits of maelstrom. Um, I wouldn't <laughs> like to give you the false impression that I fail through life. Calmly negotiating everything by being thoughtful and uh, introspective. But I do a little session on gratitude, and sometimes that... <laughs> That, that can be quite a struggle. Um, wow. so what was the bit that I was really pleased about today? And, um, and particularly at the moment during the kind of coronavirus thing, it's, uh, uh, sometimes the smallest things can help. But um, I just find that helps me put a seal on the end of the day, if I'm honest, and, and allows me to take into the next day either a particular intention to turn up better or different for me the fact that um, actually I did handle something okay, and it's all right for me to you know I can replicate that as I go forward. So I'm, I'm probably quite. I'm, my wife Pitt would say I'm very self-critical, but um, I think I'm. I set, I set everyone else high standards. No reason why I shouldn't set <laughs> standards for myself again. Uh, but I, have, I, set, I start each and I won't look at emails at the start of the day. I will go to the back of my my book. Um, I, know, I write and have a notebook. I don't use. I don't. Um, I don't keep. I keep an electronic diary, but I don't have an electronic to do list or anything. So I, um, I have my notebook, and it's set out in in three sections: so five thousand feet, fifty feet, and five feet. I try to understand what the whole of my week picture looks like, and I try to do something big straight off, rather than getting caught in the sort of spinny shit stuff of just looking at looking at and answering the email first first thing in a day and that sets me uh it sets me and my senior team the kind of pathway for the week and the month and that's what we try to hold on to when things get a little bit tougher
0: that's an awesome reflection uh nick and it's so generous of you to share a little bit of vulnerability there in terms of the things that you do at the end of this podcast for people uh, to really take away and think about Uh, nick i want to say a big thanks for joining me on the culture makers podcast
1: you are very welcome
0: thank you for inviting me Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to subscribe or share the link on your social media platform of choice, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you hang out. You can also forward it onto your colleagues and friends and help them to inspire and motivate others too. Better still, why not keep the conversation going and join our community of culture makers from around the world who share information on the things that have worked and haven't worked. You can do that at www.culturefixcommunity.com and remember... Sharing is caring. See you next time.